Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Every time something remarkable happens in my life, or every time I even sit down to, you know, write something, and I'm getting paid to write something, or I'm getting paid to teach something, I think, wow, I am literally one generation removed from an illiterate woman on a mountaintop in Baghdad who had no say in how her life played out. That's Shelley Tegelski, author of Sit Down to Rise Up, How Radical Self-Care Can Change the World. We discuss her hard-charging, abbreviated childhood, burning out of the corporate grind, persevering through darkness and disability, and finding her calling of mindfulness and meditation. Focus on your breathing. Get your mind in the moment. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to others. And follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. Joining me right now is Shelly Tegelski. Uh, this is a special episode for me because we go back a long way, and I'll explain. After spending nearly 20 years in corporate America, Shelly was immersed in Fortune 1000 companies and organizations and held various executive positions in public and privately held companies. She decided to stop following the corporate path and start following her lifelong passion, which was mindfulness and meditation. Her book, which drops on October 12th, is Sit Down to Rise Up, How Radical Self-Care Can Change the World. The forward is by funny woman Chelsea Handler, and none other than President Joe Biden says Shelley is, quote, saving people's lives and giving them hope. And that doesn't even start your story. How are you? I am so well, and I'm so excited to reconnect with you, old friend. Well, by way of full disclosure, I want everybody to know that you and I grew up in the same condominium complex. And as I always bother you, over the years we kept up, you introduced me to Van Halen. You had a big David Lee Roth poster in your room. And, uh, you know, that album, 1984, changed my life and everything. And as everybody knows, I'm a massive Van Halen fan. But that is neither here nor there. I will share another memory. I knew that you were exceedingly motivated from a very early age. And I think I remember in elementary school, it seemed to have been a foregone conclusion that Shelley, this whippersnapper, this life force of energy, was going to go to University of Miami and do uh, the six-year med program where you kind of completed as an undergrad. What happened? Oh, wow. Life. Life happens, right? I think... Um as you can probably, um, you know, mm. empathize with in the types of households that we grew up in, where education was paramount and incredibly important, of course. And I think just if I may say, I think growing up in certain cultures, especially like the Jewish culture, you know, your parents always have these high hopes that you're going to be an attorney or that you're going to be a doctor. And so that's ingrained in you from a very young age. And so 
I learned very quickly that when people would ask me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would say doctor and I would get like all these, wow, that's great accolades, you know? And so that kind of fed into this goal that I had that I really wasn't my goal. I realized, you know, as I was going through the journey, it was a goal that I think, you know, my parents had and that I thought society would want me to realize. Uh, But I realized very, you know, quickly in the process that I was not really cut out to do that work. And I'm really happy and fortunate that I did realize that. But I wound up in the six-year med program. I left, as you might remember, I left high school after 11th grade. I did not do my senior year of high school. I I was accepted early admissions to that program. And I found myself as a 15-year-old you know, in undergrad, in my freshman year of school. And, and and I look back now and I think, first of all, what the hell was I thinking? And second of all, Jeez. what the hell were my parents thinking that they allowed me to do to do this, you know? Because I wasn't ready for it. Emotionally, I wasn't mentally prepared, you know? It was a, I certainly, and I, and I say this to my son all the time now, you know, don't rush your childhood. Like, these are the best years of your life. And as cliche as it sounds, but it's true. And I, I feel like I just pressed fast forward because I was like trying to get to my goals into adulthood so quickly. And I kind of forgot to just be a kid and enjoy not having obligations. And I'm kind of making up for lost time now in my second half of life. It's so fascinating how, you know, the shadow and persona of everything works, because to me, the memory of you, you were smaller, you were you were indefatigable, you were constant energy, you were uh, life of the conversation, popular in school supremely motivated to the point that I think by middle school, you we knew that you were destined to not fully complete high school and jump into University of Miami. And again, complete the medical programs as a six-year undergrad, right? Here we are, you know, 40 years or so after I met you. And uh, yes, I knew you were born in Israel. You came with your family to Brooklyn at age two. I did not know that you were kidnapped while waiting for your mother at the Brooklyn DMV office. And I further didn't know about your Iraqi ancestry and, and the peasantry and that we share you know, something in common in ancient Babylonia. But first, unpack the DMV memory for me. <laughs> well, it's interesting because, you know, I don't remember it firsthand. I remember it as it was told to me growing up. And it was one of these stories that was always shared around um you know, dinner tables and Mm. um, like a shock factor, you know, my my mother would just gently insert into like a conversation when people would ask about, you know, how we got here and what have you. She would just say, oh, and my daughter was kidnapped when she was two. And, you know, would create this like big pause of like, what? That's so crazy. Um, So basically, yeah, I was I listen, I was a very gregarious child. I know that's very hard to believe that I was outgoing and that I like talking to people. Um, And I, um, you know, would have this habit as well of going up to just strangers and start talking to them. and, And I was incredibly interested in people. Uh, and I still am to this day. And so I would imagine that I probably, you know, interacted with somebody in the waiting room at the DMV. And then when my mother was called in to get her eye exam and was obviously preoccupied with covering one eye uh, and trying very hard as a woman who did not speak English and was trying to, you know, focus on the test that she had to pass which I'm sure gave her a lot of anxiety and agita, I either wandered off or I was 
you know, taken. Uh, but my mother, as soon as she, you know, completed the test, turned around and saw that I was gone. I was completely missing and nowhere to be found in the DMV. And there was a good Samaritan that day that sat in the waiting room that remembered me from her brief interaction with my mother and, and myself while we were sitting waiting for my mom to be called. And she saw me being carried off by a couple. Uh, and she immediately knew that she had a choice to make. She had to make a choice between either running in to try to find my mother mm. or running after this couple, knowing that there was something wrong because obviously I had not arrived with them. And she chose the latter. She ran after this couple, didn't think twice about the potential danger to herself, and followed them for city blocks into a housing complex in Brooklyn uh, off of Ocean Parkway and saw them entering into a building and then proceeded to run back to the DMV to tell my mom, like, I know where your daughter is. Follow me. And... Again, my mother did not speak English well at all. And so they were sort of, as my mom describes it, you know, speaking in charades. Um, And this woman finally just was like done with trying to explain to my mother what was going on, who at that point was completely broken down in in grief and in fear. And she just grabbed my mother's arm and ran all these city blocks with her into this complex being followed by at this point, the Brooklyn or the, the New York PD, which was, which was called to the scene of the crime. And, um, and it took like a good, you know, few hours for them to make it through. They had to lock down the building and go floor to floor to floor, knocking on every single door, looking in all the corridors and all the stairwells to, see if they could find me and uh, you know second to last floor on this very tall building uh when the elevator's door opened to that second to last floor i was sitting there or i was actually being carried uh by this woman and i was as happy as happy could be i was totally fine i was not i had no awareness that i was in any danger i was smiling and laughing and of course happy to see my mom but couldn't understand why my mom was crying And so I jumped into my mother's arms. I asked her, why are you crying, mom? And she just, you know, completely lost it from the joy of the reunification. And it's so interesting because the way I tell it in the book is that for so many years, I honestly thought this was a story about me or a story about my mom's angst. But really, you know, as I started to think about the Good Samaritan who kind of gets lost in the story as it is told at least by my family, I was just fascinated by that moment of agency that she had, that she was able to, in a split second, make a decision to, again, risk her life or to do the right thing on behalf of somebody that she didn't even know. And I was fascinated by that. And that really became you know, a part of my life that began to inform a lot of the work that I would find myself immersed in for decades to come. You know, you write that we're each born with a sense of urgency and what you explain is the ability to rise up, assert ourselves and become an agent for social change, whatever it is, regardless of our circumstances. I struggle with agency from the perception and the worldview of a young person. You know, take take me back to kind of when you zeroed in on I want to be an achiever, a motivated person. You come from 
a high expectation conservative Jewish immigrant household. Uh, your father was a mechanic. You know, we come from a working class neighborhood. It was the same thing drilled in my head from my parents. And the agency that I had, you know, is I'm going to study my tail off. I'll sacrifice my childhood to get into the college that I want to get in. And and that'll be my ticket. How did you process that? Hmm. So, well, I mean, there were a couple of factors. So if, as I recall, you're the oldest of two children. You have a younger brother. That's right. I'm the youngest uh, of my family. And I have two older brothers, uh, my brother Isaac, who's 10 years older, and my brother Omri, who's seven years older than me. And so I grew up thinking that on the one side that I was like the third brother, you know, like anything you can do, I can do. And so they were out there skate skating and surfing and, you know, just getting into into trouble and in the neighborhood. Um, and I was following suit, you know, trying to basically prove myself as that from a physical perspective, I could also kind of keep up and you know, my brothers were really protective of me. My brother Omri taught me how to read when I was like two, two, three years old. Like, so I entered kindergarten already knowing how to read because he used to make me sit down and like, even though I didn't know what I was copying at the time, but he used to make me write out and copy books so that I could learn how to write as well uh, before I even entered, you know, pre-K and kindergarten and knew what I was writing down. So my brothers had a really big hand in kind of shaping who I was and in terms of motivation, but also never feeling like, oh, I'm, I'm a girl or I'm a woman or I can't, I can't achieve uh, certain things because of the fact that, you know, I have this like gender that was assigned to me at birth and that my parents who came from a very traditional culture where women kind of took a back seat, you know, like they didn't, I don't know that they had these like high expectations for me initially. Right. Um, so I felt like I always had something to prove. And because of my brothers, I was able to uh, kind of break through that barrier of thinking, oh, I'm a girl, so I can't do that. The other part of it, Robin, and you may remember uh, a girl that we went to school with who was actually one of my best friends growing up and somebody that I still keep in touch with uh, to this day, a girl by the name of Jennifer Hyde, who had <clears throat> very bright, red, beautiful oh, yes. hair. Yes. And Jennifer was an only child, incredibly bright. And I used to go to her house all the time growing up. And her house was very different than mine. Her parents would have deep political conversations. They would talk about world affairs. This type of conversation was never happening in my household around the dinner table. And Jennifer was a vegetarian from a very early age. She came over to my house for Shabbat dinner. And I remember being like 11 or 12 years old and my mother offering her, I don't know, brisket or meatloaf or whatever my mom was cooking up at the time. And Jennifer looked at my mom and said, no, I don't eat animals. I'm a vegetarian. And in that moment, I was like, wait, what? That's a thing? You could be a vegetarian? Like, I have a choice to make? And wait, what do you mean you don't eat animals? And so that moment, and I have spoken to Jennifer about this, you know, in the last few years. And she, of course, she's like, I don't even remember that moment. But yes, you know, I do remember coming to your house for Shabbat dinners. But that was such an impactful moment for me because I then, through Jennifer, became a vegetarian, became incredibly involved in Greenpeace, became incredibly involved in uh, people for the ethical treatment of animals. 
and staged an entire recycling program at our middle school or junior high, as it was known as back then, you know, so basically just through being connected to another family that I admired and that was involved politically, I learned that I had the ability, even at a very young age, to enact change, to to be the change that I want to see in the world. And not just from a lip service perspective, but to actually mobilize people and and get the school administrators and get, you know, other students sort of on board with being able to to make the change that we wanted to see in our community. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Shelly Tegelski. She's founder of Pandemic of Love. It's a global grassroots mutual aid organization that's been featured on CNN Heroes, The Kelly Clarkson Show, CBS This Morning, and Upworthy, the book, uh, which drops in October, is Sit Down to Rise Up, How Radical Self-Care Can Change the World. By way of your Instagram account, which is very well-trafficked, Mindful Skater Girl, another point of reference, you can kind of pivot to Jennifer Hyde and how that opened up your eyes. Tell me about your grandmother and her peasantry and her lack of rights and agency. This was very poignant because you come from Iraqi lineage. I come from Iranian lineage. I'm not far removed. My grandparents were illiterate merchants. You know, you go back and you you look at their wives and their their parents' wives and everything else, and it's not far removed from indentured servitude, a lot of these relationships. But I was really struck when you had that photo and caption of your grandmother. Tell me about her. Wow. Well, my grandmother, um, you know, I think about her almost on a daily basis because every time something remarkable happens in my life or every time I even sit down to, you know, write something and I'm getting paid to write something or I'm getting paid to teach something, I think, wow, I am literally one generation removed from an illiterate woman on a mountaintop in Baghdad who had no say in how her life played out. You know, she was married off at an incredibly young age and her daughters who were born in Iraq and were raised in Iraq, right? My mother had the good fortune of being sort of the last daughter in the pecking order. Um, so she was able to have a future in Israel. But but while the women that were raised, my, my aunts that were raised in Baghdad did not have that fortune. They were also married off at age 12, 13, 14, and already had a brood of children when they came over to, to Israel uh, in 1949. Um, my grandmother, you know, it's so interesting because she was married, she was the first wife in, in this polygamist relationship, which was very normal at the time, especially in those countries. And still to this day, you know, there are um, definitely cultures that have uh, sister wives and it's it's just a, a normal way of being. And my, But my grandmother, you know, she was always seen as by everybody in the family as somebody who was like really humble and quiet and um, helpful. But I learned later on when I sort of analyzed my react, my, my interactions with her growing up that there was this sadness. There was this deep sadness um, about her own life, but I think more so the lives of her children. And when I think about her relationship with my mother and the fact that she 
really encouraged my mom to, you know, and fought for my mom, which was, again, very taboo. Like, this was not something that a woman in her position did. But my mother, like, fought for my mother. My grandmother fought for my mother to finish high school, you know, to be able to marry who she wanted to marry, to get a job. And in a way, I think, like, she, towards the end of her life, was able to set these wheels in motion and, and really start to heal that intergenerational trauma that I think has been going on, at least in the matriarchal lineage of my family, for, for generations. So intergenerational trauma, I, and I'm, I'm starting to get into stuff, and I remember your mother as well. What was the earliest instruction that you had that, look, we are privileged, I come from this background, you know, you see your father's a mechanic, Shelly, you know what you need to do at school, do it well, do it right. Because again... I, I've never met anyone else who knew kind of by middle school, by the end of elementary school, that she was on a glide path to the six-year medical school program at University of Miami. It was inevitable. Right. Yeah. I Well, I don't know if it was inevitable. I knew I was on a path to something. And the truth of the matter is, Robin, is that I... I had a very strange high school experience. Like I kind of also felt like an outsider, even though I had a lot of friends and people don't remember it that way. When I speak to people, they're like, oh, you had all these friends. You were popular. You did. And I'm like, I never felt more out of place than in high school. And so for me, I also wanted to just get the hell out of high school. I was like, how can I get out of this house? How can I get out of out of this high school situation as quickly as possible. That was part of, of you know, what fed that, um, you know, that energy of like wanting to to achieve or to overachieve, if you will. But I, I just remember from a very early age and, and we shared the same kindergarten teacher, right? Miss At, th- at that time, her name was Mrs. Harris. Was Mrs. Harris. Was Mrs. Harris. Was at the front row of my book party and she recently spent Friday with you with most formative teacher I ever had, but go ahead. <laughs> she she took my parents aside. And I think that, you know, she really set the wheels in motion. She told my parents uh, at a very early age, like, your daughter is gifted. She's very smart. Like, you need to, you know, and my parents had no clue. They're like, what, what is this gifted thing? Like, what are you talking about? You know, right. and she was like, no, you have to get her tested. She needs to be in this program at this school. And she so she like set that trajectory in a certain way. And I think that I had enough people, enough people in my front row, like Mrs. Harris, Mrs. Ziegler. I had um, we had amazing teachers growing up. We really did that were all in our front row rooting for us. And the fact that I had my brothers rooting me on as well helped to make me believe that I could achieve this. And I think my parents eventually got on board with that and realized, okay, she's going to go do her own thing. She's not going to be married off at age 18 to some like Syrian dude from Ocean Parkway and (laughs) and have like 17 children. She's going to, you know, carve and blaze her own path. She's really feisty. And uh, and we've got to just get on board with that. And so my parents, I think by in a way, and maybe you can I don't know if your parents were like this, but my parents were really passive aggressive about certain things. So, oh, yes, (laughs) immigrant Middle Eastern parents. But. Uh, don't get me in more trouble with my mom, but go ahead. I know. Well, so like, you know, my brothers, bless their soul, you know, they're very successful now and they're great and wonderful, but it took them a while to figure out that like, you know, they need to do well in school and like get their act together. But so if my brother would come home with like a B, 
or even like a C plus, everybody would like celebrate, you know, my oldest brother, yeah. Isaac barely finished high school, you know, it was like on a wing and a prayer that he finished high school. And it was really only later on that he was like, wait a minute, if I want to like be successful in life, I've got to like get my act together. And he, you know, eventually figured that out. But if I would come home with like an A minus, my parents would look at me and say like, why not an A? Why not an A plus, you know? <laughs> So it was like, it was part of that too, in a way. And I just think about that. And I'm like, God, that was so, what an unhealthy like driver to sort of, you know, and I, and I overcorrected that with my own son, who's now 19 and, a, and just finished his freshman year at UC Santa Cruz. Um, but he's, you know, I, I, I just never, ever said to him, like, why didn't you get an A or why didn't you get a B? Because I just thought, you know, he'll figure it out eventually on his own. And he did. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Shelley Tegelski, author of Sit Down to Rise Up. So much to unpack in her life. Please stay with us. This show podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe and rate us. And we're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and any social media channel that you follow at handle fulldradio. If you're just joining us, we are talking to Shelly Tegelski, founder of Pandemic of Love, my childhood friend. We go back 40 years, and uh, this is kind of a, a, a half-life or what exit interview. I don't even know what to call it, but... I'm so fascinated that this is this is you know your your name is kind of taken on this association now you get props from everybody from Deborah Messing President Joe Biden says you're saving people's lives and giving them hope but before we get there Shelley I want you to tell us how corporate America beckoned and talk about that draw on your life when you decided medical school wasn't for you Yeah so the decision not to go to medical school actually wasn't something that came about overnight. I was in the six-year med program, which is two years undergrad, four years med school. And remember, I graduated high school at the age of 15, which means that if I was on track, I would have become a medical doctor by the age of 21, almost 22, which is really crazy when you think about it, because that's the time when most people are just entering medical school. And so... One of the deans at the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Miami, who was, you know, a mentor to me, said, you know, why don't you take a year and we can expand this into a seven year program. You don't have to because he saw that I was getting really anxious about the fact that I just finally got the hang of undergrad and was starting to kind of come into my own. And I didn't really have the opportunity in, in those two years to take anything but medical school requirement type classes, right? Like you 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 don't really have the opportunity to branch out and take classes in social sciences or um, art or anything that might be of interest to you. So recognizing that he made that suggestion and I decided as well to study abroad. So I took I took an extra year, spent six months in Miami, and then another six months at the Rothberg School of Overseas Studies at the Hebrew University in Mount Scopus in Jerusalem. And that was really a formidable experience for me because at that time, my great uncle on my mother's side was the Minister of Defense in Israel. And so, you know, I knew people. And I was able to to get um, an internship. I wound up getting an internship with um, with the um, Ministry of Interior, 
and the Ministry of Health. And basically what I was tasked to do, and I had no idea how this would change my life at the time, but I, I basically was tasked with going into places like Ramallah and, and Hebron and Gaza and places that were really forbidden for an Israeli citizen to go into. And this is in the late 90s. But there was also like at that time, you know, this is before Rabin's assassination, there was still a lot of like hope that things were on the right path and that we were on some sort of a path to peace. But I wound up working in these territories and um, polling women uh, about the situation in in their household, access to health care, access to education for their children, etc., and um, worked with individuals from NGOs in from Geneva, like the UNHCR, right, the Human High Human Rights Commissioner, and the World Health Organization at the time, and that gave me a completely different lens onto the stories that I was told when I was a child, and that informed my belief that I should be immensely afraid of anybody who was Palestinian and that, you know, that anybody who was Palestinian wanted to, wanted to kill me. They wanted to excommunicate my family. They didn't believe that we um, had a right to be in Israel and certainly, you know, would do anything possible to, to, to make sure that that was the case, that we would be, you know, kind of sent back out of, of Israel in order to regain access or, or control of the land. And so I grew up really fearing anybody that spoke Arabic. I grew up fearing uh, Muslims. I grew up fearing Palestinians, certainly. And when I had the opportunity to go into these living rooms and sit down with Palestinian families and have a cup of tea and, you know, get to know their families and get to speak to these mothers who had the same hopes for their children that my own mother had for me and for for her children, um, I realized very quickly that uh, everything I was really told as a child was wrong. And, um, and I had to, you know, had the opportunity to kind of make up my own narrative. And when when that time ended, when my time at the Hebrew University ended, and I came back to the University of Miami, I really was still not ready to go to medical school, I realized that, you know, that I could continue on this path that was really intriguing to me, that helped me help people in the same way that I could as a doctor, but really try to change narratives. And I understood that the way to do that was to, you know, share stories, help create proximity and help create movements. And I didn't really know how I was going to do that at the time, but I wound up, uh, I found myself working for the World Health Organization in Geneva, living in Geneva, Switzerland. And and that was sort of, you know, I was like, I'm going to do this for a year and then I'm going to come back and go to medical school. And, you know, my life just took a completely different path after I made that decision, that one decision point. You know, the two decades since you were a business executive, it says in your bio that you were president of a $70 million security firm with nearly 2500 employees what did you did you feel correct or self-actualized or or fulfilled in that i mean just tell me briefly what that felt like i di- you know i didn't i actually wound up like many people who i'm sure are listening to this you know episode and many people can probably relate to this you know 
you you wind up being saddled in your life with these obligations and your life winds up taking, you know, your bright-eyed, bushy-tailed young person coming out of college or coming even out of grad school thinking, I'm going to change the world, right? So I got out of, after working at the World Health Organization, wound up going to grad school at Columbia University, came out of Columbia with an enormous amount of student debt. Because as you Mm -hmm. know, like our families could not afford to pay the tuitions, Right. right? So you had to take student loans on. And at the time, the the economy was great. This was the late 90s. I was getting job offer after job offer to go work for big five firms and uh, and make six figures, which was like just unheard of and crazy to even be able to fathom a number like that in New York City. And I thought, oh, I'm just going to go work, you know, for, for a firm for a couple of years, get my student loans paid off, and then I'll go change the world. Then I'll go work for a UN agency. Then I'll go start mm. a movement. And, you know, life happens. Then you wind up getting accustomed to making a certain amount of money. You wind up being, to your own detriment in a way, good at your job because you're an overachiever and a type A personality who goes above and beyond always. And so you're constantly promoted and you wind up in a situation where you're like looking back 10 years later and you're like, wait a minute, how did I get here? How did I get to be the vice president of a public company in a kind of field that I'm not even really passionate about, but I happen to be really good at this job. And now I have a mortgage and a marriage and a kid and, you know, all these other obligations in life. uh, So it won't be easy for me to leave. So I wound up in my last job, my very last job in corporate America, yes, as the president of a firm, you know, it was I had this um, sort of goal, uh, if you will, being that goal-oriented person to mm. um, to be the CEO or the president of a company before the age of forty, and I was thirty-eight years old, achieved that goal. And I can tell you, Robin, that I was the most miserable I had ever been in my life. Uh, I was so unfulfilled. I hated coming to work every single day because I felt like I wasn't actually doing anything to like make the world a better place. I felt even though I was involved in charities and nonprofits and, you know, sitting on boards, I, I felt very unfulfilled from Monday through Friday. And I also, you know, never worked harder than those four years that I was in that position and I traveled just extensively and felt like I was completely out of touch with myself, with my family, and certainly did not really have a community surrounding me. And that was really the, the, the moment where I was like, you know, I need, to, I need to build community and I need to make a change because I can't continue like this. Shelley, you uh, mentioned it briefly, but you have now a 19-year-old son, which means you were a mother very early on in your mid-20s. And at the same time that you're on this glide path, to, you said you wanted to be a CEO of a maybe a public or private firm by the age of 40. How did that change the trajectory? In addition to the fact that, did I mention that you were battling an autoimmune eye disease that periodically plunges you into blindness? Yeah, no, I, I, listen, I was a single mom. So my, my, my son was born when I was 25. Uh, by the time, by the age of 27, uh, I was divorced. I was diagnosed with my autoimmune condition. And I found myself in not just a literal, but also a very proverbial dark place. And I realized, you know, this is my, this is my life. And I am responsible for this little being. And I need to get my act together. Like I, I sort of feel felt like I fizzled out, you know, like I had all these high yeah. hopes 
coming out of uh, college and coming out of grad school and thought, oh, I'm going to change the world. And then suddenly I found myself in a position where I was, um, you know, divorced and and basically had no real trajectory at that point. Like I, had, I was lost. I was completely lost. And I thought, God, maybe I should have gone to medical school because at least I would have had a profession at this point and then something to do uh, that was that, that, you know, that that was giving back to the world in some way. But I had to get my act together because of my son. And I always say to him, uh, even though he doesn't really understand it, and maybe one day when he reads the book, he'll he'll understand it a little bit more fully. But that really he he saved my life in many ways because mm. I realized that I had this responsibility to not only provide for him, but I think also be a role model. Like I realized, like he's watching my every move, and I need to prove to him that you know that that women can do anything and that they can be strong. And that, you know, that I could provide for him and make sure that he has the opportunities that that our parents worked so hard to give us, but that, you know, I wanted to make sure that he, at the very least, had the opportunities that I had growing up, which are, as you know, way more expensive than they were back then. I have to, Shelly, I have to quote from your Instagram handle, Mindful Skater Girl. Uh, if the path before you is clear, you're on someone else's. Yeah. And then, um, you know, there are some other ones that really hit me. Um, we are afraid of losing people. Rather, we should be afraid of losing ourselves to please people. And of course, life is the most difficult, simple thing ever. Uh, we're talking to Shelly Tegelski. She's author of the forthcoming book, Sit Down to Rise Up, How Radical Self-Care Can Change the World. It drops on October 12th. It's your first book. I have to ask you about this pandemic because you're synonymous with the movement Pandemic of Love, which you founded. When all of this struck, the inception of the pandemic, let's say March of 2020, you came out and um, used your social media clout to post this kind of this balance sheet of have and need, which tried to connect people that are eager to get help and need help. Tell me about that. Yeah. So it's so interesting because when you read some of the articles about Pandemic of Love or even, you know, you watch some of the episodes or, or kind of segments that that were on TV, it paints this picture that I just kind of sat around my 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 kitchen table and thought, oh, what can I do, you know, that can help people during the pandemic? I know. Let me create two forms. And what they miss about that story is that I already had at that point, I'd been almost five years out of the corporate world. I already had a meditation community that I built from 12 people to 15,000 people in South Florida in the Tri-County area of Miami-Dade County, Palm Beach, and Broward County. And so we, that community as a closed circuit was already very much enacting uh, traditional forms of direct giving or mutual aid. So my community already knew what mutual aid was and how it worked and how to you know use these forms if you will to be able to to help each other out uh, in times of need both with tangible things and also with with things that were you know of service to to others and so give me a give me an example yeah so a simple example would be robin like we you know if if somebody lost their car or didn't have a car couldn't drive on sunday mornings to the to beach meditation they would post on our closed circuit uh, Excel spreadsheet that we had up on Google Sheets, you know, I, I need a ride every Sunday morning. And then somebody would just basically go in on the sheets and pick that request up because that's something that they could do. 
somebody who maybe is a out of work and a single mom and struggling to pay a specific bill every month or um, struggling to put food in the fridge would would post something like you know I really need help with a with a gift card to a supermarket or I need help uh, paying my electric bill every month and somebody in our community would basically say you know what I can afford to commit to doing that on a monthly basis and paying that for you and so it was this beautiful redistribution of wealth but we were able to define wealth in a very loose way meaning that it wasn't just monetary it was recognizing that every single person in our community had something that they needed regardless of their socioeconomic status and that every person in our community had something they could offer even if it wasn't monetary right they had time they had energy they had the a skill set that somebody else needed and it really helped to create this equity this equity that we talk about in a very abstract way within our hyper local kind of closed circuit meditation community that gathered on Sunday mornings on the beach in Hollywood, Florida. But then look at the look at the international multiplier effect. I want to say within one year of that, you know, by by March of 2021, I understand that Pandemic of Love matched more than one and a half million people in over 280 chapters in 16 countries, making it possible for donors to directly transact $55 million to those in need. I mean, the campaign going viral, I've seen it get props by not only Joe Biden and Jill Biden, but you know, Kristen Bell, Maria Shriver, Deborah Messing, Busy Phillips, uh, Ariana Huffington, uh, Cory Booker. Uh, this is kind of using your private sector skills uh, as kind of a market maker, as a person who could connect the dots with Bingo. something. Again, and again, the local power of your, you know, we didn't really get into it, but your, your group of beach meditation people, which turned into an enormous South Florida movement. And we're all homebound at this point, and we're on our computers, and we're on Zoom, and you have this bank account, effectively, of your social media reach, and you used it to really connect people across the planet. Yeah. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, I basically said, look, I know there's a lot of people who are not in our meditation community that need help. And people were looking to me at that point because I had a platform and I had, you know, responsibility as as a leader, a community organizer, people were saying like, what can we do? Those who had the means to help, because we at that point, March 2020, we couldn't go volunteer at a food bank. You know, we we, we had no idea what we were dealing with at that time. Right. And so I had to figure out a way to creatively open up this concept of mutual aid to anybody in our community. And so initially, Robin, I just posted two very simple links on Google Forms. One was called Give Help and one was called Get Help. And, you know, I opened it up so that it wasn't just like a sheet that people can go into and then see people's private information, right? So I wanted to just create sort of um, a, a structure by which our volunteers, people in our community who now found themselves with extra time on their hands because they were furloughed or because, you know, they, they, they couldn't uh, go into work as they normally would to help create these matches between individuals who identified a specific need and individuals who said that they could fulfill that need. So that's essentially all we did is we had people fill out this form and really within 24 hours of just posting those two links on my social media page, again, which I thought would only serve the local community, uh, it did go viral, which is ironic. It's like a very funny pun, but 
Um, but yeah, it went viral in the sense that like it just got shared with people all over the world and people were reaching out to me from, you know, within a few days from Spain and from Italy and Germany and, you know, in South America. And then obviously throughout North America here, people were saying, this is really cool. I want to replicate this. Can you help me? And that's when I really started to understand that all of the training that I had in corporate America in building out, you know, infrastructures, websites, supply chain, um, understanding SQL servers and how to create like dashboards and 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 really use data to continuously improve the efficiency of a, of a product, I realized, okay, there's something really interesting here. And I think that we are going to be able to prove that mutual aid is not just a hyper-local thing that pops up during times of trauma or times of you know nat- national or natural disasters, excuse me, or national disasters actually, but actually that it could be exported, exportable, that it could be replicable, that it could be something that is global and that could last long after a pandemic is over because the premises, and actually Rebecca Skolnick says this in her incredible book, which I read years ago and just recently picked up called uh, Paradise Built in Hell. And she says, you know, it beckons the question, mutual aid beckons the question that if your neighbor is good enough to feed during a pandemic or during a time of crisis, it begs the question as to why they weren't good enough to feed before and why they are no longer good enough to feed after. You know, in talking about this, your first book, Shelley, Sit Down to Rise Up, How Radical Self-Care Can Change the World, I saw you were quoted. You said, the premise is fairly simple. When we are interconnected, when one of us heals, we all heal, which reminds me of something I always remember a rabbi or uh, someone saying or some something in bar mitzvah class training, anyone who saves anyone who saves a life is as if he saved an entire world. And talk to me more about this because, you know, in this, is it's, it's like my dad, you know, it goes back to the Good Samaritan who rescued you when you were kidnapped at age two. It goes back to your upbringing as a Sephardic Orthodox person. It goes back to tikkun olam and charity and, and tzedakah and chesed. And I know we're getting into, you know, religious weeds here, but there's a, certainly a circularity to what you're doing. And I'd love for you to explain your mom's reaction to all this now when you go to your parents and this is the life that I composed in my mid-40s mom and this is how it really jibes with, you know, where I started. It's so interesting because honestly, my mom for the first, when I quit my job, my mom thought I was completely out of my mind. She was very scared for me. She was like, are you sure you're doing the right thing? You put in all these years into studying and into working and into building, working your way up. And now you're just like leaving all that behind to do what, you know, and I had to explain mindfulness to her and meditation to her a few times for her to get her head wrapped around it. And it was really only when she finally started to come to the beach and started to speak to people who would come to my classes or come to my workshops. Wait, not not seeing you featured on CNN that didn't do it enough. <laughs> <laughs> that came later. That came last year. Right. You know, but it took her a while. Like, yes, I she finally, I think in the last like year and a half was like, oh, okay. 
I'm, I think I'm on board and I get what you're doing. You're helping people. And I'm really proud of that because let me, let me cut in here. You know, this is like the Iranian, the Iranian relatives I didn't know I had when they realized I was going into journalism. Let me just do my impression from it. What? It's like, is there commission? How do they pay you? Why you don't buy it? No, Robin, buy a gas station with your parents. Uh, but anyway, go ahead. No, wait, that is exactly, <laughs> by the way, exactly. So beach meditation was always free. Like m- one of my philosophies and, and really every, all my tenants is that it's there's got to be no barrier to entry and like there needs to be equal access for everyone to everything. And so when my mom would come to the beach and say, what, you're doing this for free? I don't understand. No, you don't charge even $5 a person. You have a living, you know, like, and I'm like, no, you're like, you're not understanding that this needs to be accessible to everyone. It has to be free. And she just couldn't get her head wrapped around that at all. Shelly, like, more like Shelcha. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> um, exactly so. But, you know, yeah. So my mom is like absolutely incredibly proud of me now. And so she, you know, now says like, my daughter, the author. And I think your parents could definitely like lean into that as well. Um <clears throat> Because I remember sitting in front of them at uh, Books and Books in Coral Gables and they were like beaming, you know, when when you were uh, doing your reading during the Miami Book Fair. Um, So, you know, there comes a moment when they finally like trust that you're an adult. It kind of took four decades for my mom to realize, okay, maybe she does know what she's doing and maybe she is okay on her own, you know, and and I can trust that that she's going to be okay. And yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's, it's really, it's really fascinating, you know, the fact that, God, I mean, I think about, I don't even think my dad really understands what I do still to this day. I'll put it, I'll put that out there. Um, but I know that he's incredibly proud of me as well and proud of seeing me. Like he's, he's the most proud when people come up to him and say like, my, your daughter really did this nice thing for me. Shelly, well, Shelly Tegelski, in the five minutes or so I have left, to the extent you could even protect his identity, tell me about your relationship with your son and things that you wish you'd have told yourself. You know, you're, again, a 15-year-old going into the University of Miami, hell-bent on going into the six-year med program. You were pre-programmed. You had so much fuel in the tank. And it's the same way I look at my son right now. I'm not going to have him kind of believe this this false social compact of of ambition and kind of, uh, you know, performance at any cost. Tell me about what you see through his eyes. You know, there's, there's, there's a few things that I think I harp upon too, if you ask my son, probably too often. But the first thing that I always look when I, I, I see that my son sees the world is in disrepair. And, you know, he's a kid that was a 9-11 baby, meaning he was born the year that 9-11 happened did not have a high school graduation uh, or a prom or a normal senior year because it was obviously during the pandemic, did not have a freshman year of college. So, you know, do you think about sort of the sacrifices, if you will? I mean, again, I understand we're not sending these kids to, you know, the shores of Normandy at this point, but like still, you know, I think from a mental health perspective and just you're at the point when you're 18 years old and your entire life is like leading up to this moment of graduation and suddenly that gets taken from you, you know, or your freshman year of school. And I and I do believe that this generation is incredibly resilient for sure. But 
I also see that he looks at the world and the problems that we have in this world, especially as it pertains to things like climate change. And he thinks like, oh my God, it's so daunting. Like there's no way, what is the point of even trying to fix anything because one person can't make a difference. And so for a very long time, forever, I always would tell him like one person can make a difference. One person can make a difference. Even if you just to, to, to lean on, uh, a Buddhist um, proverb, if you will, you know, if you just tend to the area of your garden that you can reach, if you just do that, then you can actually enact change. And I think my son honestly thought for a very long time that I was blowing smoke, you know, because it, it just sounds like a nice thing to say. But with the success of Pandemic of Love, um, and prior to that, with the growing of a community from 12 individuals to, you know, thousands of individuals, he was able to see it happen and unfold in real time and how one person, his mom, could actually just come up with a simple idea and in one moment in time and be able to um, really create this movement that was able to help millions of people and hopefully will be able to continue to do that. So now he has no excuse as to, you know, why not just get started with with an idea and tend to the area of the garden that you can reach, whatever that is. And I think that if we all lived our lives that way, right, Robin, like if we all just kind of looked at our own household, our own community, and, and on a daily basis tended to that area of the garden, that we could eventually really set that ripple effect into motion and that ripple can eventually become a tsunami. Shelly Tegelski, childhood friend, you and I go back 40 years. Thank you for introducing me to Van Halen. Thank you to our kindergarten teacher, uh, Gail Harris Pacheco, for uh, putting us on the right track. Uh, I am so grateful to you for coming on. I'm going to give you the, the book's name is Sit Down to Rise Up, How Radical Self-Care Can Change the World. The movement is, give us the particulars. Pandemic of Love. Pandemic of Love. And you can go to pandemicoflove.com and find a local community near you, a local chapter, and you can either give help or get help. It's a really simple process. Thank you. And please come back on. Oh, I definitely will. I'm looking forward to it. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly, this show podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show, if you will, to friends and fam. We're also on WERA 96.7 FM up in Arlington, Virginia, and in parts of D.C. We are down in Asheville, North Carolina. We are in SoCal in Ventura County. And holler if you too would like us on your air. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you also to Mrs. Harris, my kindergarten teacher. Back with you next week. Thank you.